You're listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. In this episode, we chat about emesis induction as a successful method of recovery of gastric foreign objects in cats with our guest, Chrissy Fisher. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we have Chrissy joining us. Chrissy, thank you again so much for being here today. Thanks for including me. So inducing emesis in cats is no easy task. And I know I can think of myself, I've spent many hours, you know, you give the cats some medication, you put them in a chair in their carrier, do a little bit of spinning, see if it's effective. However, it can be very frustrating for many small animal clinicians, but your manuscript does offer new hope for inducing emesis in cats. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background on your manuscript and how they may find this helpful? Sure. So we prospectively enrolled 22 cats in our study, and we this was an observational study. So we were basically just treating the cats as you normally would and then collecting data on what did or did not happen. And so it was up to the attending clinician to administer whatever a medic agent that they felt was most appropriate for that cat. Um, in our study, the two drugs that happened to be used most frequently were both dexmedetomidine and hydromorphone. Uh, the dexmedetomidine was used far more frequently in our study. It was used in 19 of the 22 cats, whereas the hydromorphone was used in three of the 22 cats. And then basically, we just recorded a bunch of data. So we recorded things like time from the ingestion of the object to emesis induction or attempt at emesis induction, time from their last known meal, if we recovered any vomitus or if we, if we recovered food plus the object, you know, how much food was in the vomitus, what percentage of the object was recovered, and we categorized that into like less than 25%. 26 to 50%, 51 to 75%, and then greater than 75%. And sometimes that was easy because if the whole object came up, we knew it came up. But when it was pieces, sometimes we would have to uh, enroll the owner's help in determining how much of this was what the cat actually ate. And then we recorded things like any complications, whether further attempts were performed. And then we recorded as much information about the object itself so what kind of object, how big it was, we, we measured it, which was, you know, really fun to measure whatever comes out of a cat vomit. Um, and then we calculated the surface area as well. And we kind of hypothesized that the time from ingestion of the object to the attempt at emesis would matter, would influence our ability to recover the object. And the same for the type and size. So we figured the larger the object you know, probably we wouldn't recover it. Um, and also like the time from the last meal to its successful emesis. And really what we ended up determining from this study was that in, in inducing vomiting in cats, 50% of the cats vomited up their foreign object, either partial or all of it. And whenever a repeated attempt at emesis was performed, it was never successful. And ironically, the most common object that we were able to recover was in that category of rubber bands and hair ties. And then the most common object that we were unsuccessful at recovering was also hair ties and rubber bands. So I think that that's just because it's the most common object that cats happen to eat. And as it turned out, all of the things that we thought may influence our ability to recover the object, so time from the last meal, time from actually ingesting the object, what size the object was, none of those things actually turned out to influence our success. So um, I think a very useful study 
but kind of also on the same, uh, you know, it, it fits the bill that for cats, there's really no way to predict whether you're going to be successful at getting them to vomit their object because that is the world of cats, I guess. I was going to say that tracks very well with both personal and clinical experience. Right. (laughs) Makes sense. So your manuscript examined not just one, but multiple therapies, as you kind of already alluded to, as far as inducing emesis in cats. What would you recommend, though, based on your study findings to feline practitioners? Yeah, so... Our study, like I had said, we the clinicians in our study ended up only using either dexmedetomidine or hydromorphone. And despite dexmedetomidine being used more frequently, there was actually no difference in success rates between the two of those drugs in our study. And what we do know is that based on a few uh, other authors, Tholly, Nystrom, to name a few, that both dexmedetomidine and hydromorphone are safe options for inducing emesis in cats, whether that's for a gastric foreign object or for a toxicant or what have you. Um, But probably we wouldn't recommend repeating attempts at emesis induction because what we gained from our study was that it didn't work. So I would say, you know, our our practice, our institution had a preference for dexmedetomidine, but I would say that you could either use dexmedetomidine or hydromorphone safely, just knowing that what to tell the client is that from what we know, at least right now, it's about a 50% chance of recovery. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. There's some really good clinical nuggets in there. Yeah. As you said earlier, Chrissy, your um, manuscript is a prospective study design. So you, you obviously put time and thought into how can we design this study? And what really sparked your interest in studying emesis and measuring vomitus? <laughs> so I will say that during my residency at the University of Pennsylvania, I had a few studies going on at the same time about emesis induction, not just in cats, but in dogs as well. And one of the first studies I started was looking at sub-Q versus IV use of apomorphine in dogs for the induction of emesis. Like would sub-Q would it work? Because I think that there are scenarios where it's easier or safer for handling um, if you have like a really big, mean, aggressive dog that you can't get IV access. So we had started with that. And then we had read a few papers about people who had really good success with gastric foreign object recovery with emesis induction in dogs. And the data was really lacking for cats. And so what I ended up doing was kind of double dipping a little bit. So we had this sub-Q IV apomorphine study going on at the same time. And then we were like, well, let's let's just observe and collect this information for dogs and cats. Um, and so we just got through the cat stuff a little bit sooner, hence this paper now. But um, we also did the same exact study. So the same data sheet that we used for the cats, we also have for dogs. We just have to crunch those numbers still. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Sarah and I are constantly looking for more cat manuscripts, like dogs. The research in dogs is a lot more. And boy, we do need these clinical tips for cats as well. Do you have an instinct? Can you share us any insight into your dog study? Do you have an instinct? I know you said you still need to crunch the numbers, but. So uh, I think from what we were viewing kind of at the surface level is that I think the time from when they ingest an object to when they present is probably going to be influential, but I don't know about whether there's food present. I, I don't, I don't think that that's going to matter because I know that there is this like anecdotal storyline that maybe if you are unsuccessful at MSS induction, like feed them a meal and try repeating it. And so that those are the things that we're trying to figure out. Is that, is this all anecdote or is this evidence-based? So that was part of the reason why we included 
questions like when was the last meal? Was there any food in the vomit? And I think for dogs, you know, I'll have to double check, but I don't think it's going to matter. Yeah. Thank you. I like yeah. to say eminence-based or evidence-based. Right. right. <laughs> so much of that stuff just keeps getting passed down. <laughs> what what Chrissy inspired you to write this manuscript and, and self-servingly, uh, what inspired you to share it with us at JAVMA? Yeah. So I think, you know, the challenge of just cats in the emergency room is, was inspiration enough? You know, I think that they, like you had said, the, the data is out there for dogs for so many topics in veterinary medicine, but it's really lacking for cats. And so when we were starting to look at some of these factors for dogs, we realized that there was no study for cats. You know, we knew that you could induce vomiting with many, many medications and some of them not even medications, you know, like hydrogen peroxide was used for a while. Um, And so I'm glad we're kind of steering away from that. And we have some data to say these medications can work. And so I think, you know, instead of trying our luck, what was more like, let's see if we can get some evidence behind this. And it turns out, at least in our study, it was a 50-50 chance. That's excellent. And you know, Lisa, sometimes I think we should rename this podcast Mythbusters, because I do feel like we bring a lot of new information to light about having these evidence-based studies that can really help on our clinicians. So thank you. So a little bit more personal, Chrissy, you're a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. How did your advanced training prepare you to write this manuscript? Yeah, so I think I was really lucky in having a bunch of mentors on all of the vomiting papers that we had we had going at the same time. Um, so, you know, if you've never sat down to write a scientific article before, it can be really daunting. And I think having the mentorship that I did during my residency at the University of Pennsylvania really helped me get the get the sort of hit the ground running, if you will. Um, and so we had really good mentors. And then there was also a lot, a lot of people who were interested in this topic. You know, a lot of the ER clinicians and the ER faculty and even interns and residents in training these were data sheets that made sense because these were questions we asked ourselves all the time. Like, would it matter if the cats are, you know, had eaten or if they didn't or when they ate it or when they, when they didn't. So it was nice to know that I always had a, a, a team of people in my corner that were not just doing it for me, but were truly interested in the topic to help me collect cases and fill out the data sheets appropriately. Um, even if I wasn't working or on, on shift that day, it was nice, you know, to always have people that could, help me get my job done. It's great to have mentors and at JAVMA, we really do try to streamline the process too for our authors and also our reviewers as well. So we try to make it as easy as possible and provide excellent customer service. Yeah. And the apomorphine study that we did with dogs, we published in JAVMA because we felt like it hits the most, the, the broadest group of veterinarians. And we feel like this topic is one that it's not just emergency and critical care clinicians, but it's kind of everybody that, you know, may be faced with a challenging cat that needs to throw up the rubber band that it just ate from the garbage. Oh, a hundred percent. It's really important information. I'm glad we're getting it out there too, to practitioners. So thank you. So next question is pretty important for our listeners. If a veterinarian is about to meet a client, what is one piece of information they should know about inducing emesis in cats? Yeah. So I think we had sort of alluded to this a little bit before, but definitely moving away from the hydrogen peroxide cyst, using hydrogen peroxide, we know that we have safer means of inducing emesis. I just think what's really important is to tell the client from the start, 
Um, we will try, we should, we should attempt with uh, an intramuscular injection of dexmedetomidine or a sub-Q injection of hydromorphone. But what we have to know is that with the data we have right now, it's a 50% chance of being able to recover that object. And so what that means for the owner is they can prepare mentally for, okay, well, if we are unsuccessful, what are the risks if I do nothing after that? Or do I need to proceed to something like an endoscopy or even surgery, let's say? So I think it helps to prepare the cat owner for what they might be up against. Yeah, thank you. You make surgery sound so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just a lot nicer when they throw up and the and the toys and the vomitus than rather than going to surgery. But sometimes, you know, you have to get it out. And however that means, whatever that means is might be surgery. You know what we say, chance to cut is a chance to cure, Chrissy. <laughs> Uh, Sarah alluded to some of your other training. And when I was reading your bio, Chrissy, I was really interested that you went to UConn and had a minor in Italian. Yeah, I will. Um, my mom is like off the boat Italian and was an Italian teacher. So it was like a very easy minor for me because I grew up sort of speaking Italian. And if I had, you know, I was a heavy science track for all of my core curriculum. And so to fill sort of the like liberal arts part of stuff, part of my curriculum, I went with the Italian route and got my minor. So I, it was, it was easy, but really, really fun. That's, that's awesome. You're the first guest that we've had that has a minor in Italian as far as I know. So, <laughs> um, and while well, we're talking about some more fun, personal things, uh, one of the best questions that Sarah and I learn a lot of things about is uh, this next one, which is what is the oldest or the most interesting item either on your desk or in your desk drawer? Yeah, so I think it's possibly the oldest and most interesting. I have the like my original iPod. I think they were like the iPod Nanos. I like I can throw I, I don't have it in my heart to throw it away. It feels like such an important part of, of growing up, but you know, it's the one that doesn't even really have a screen. You have to like scroll, you know, the first real piece of technology that we all had or that I had was, was that iPod. So I, I'm the, probably going to keep it forever. The shuffle, right? Wasn't the that shuffle. Like, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You, you could pause or move forward too quickly or to, or, you know, all with one button. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you alluded to mentorship a little bit earlier, uh, but it takes more than that. It takes personal grit, determination, whatever buzzword you want to throw at it. And you clearly have it. Where do you think you got your personal determination from? Um, I think, you know, I want to put a lot of uh, a lot of credit towards playing sports when I was younger and and maintaining that like athlete mentality throughout life. So I grew up playing soccer. I played soccer. Uh, I played club soccer for the University of Connecticut. Um, I've always been very competitive in that sense. And as you know, you have to have a little bit of competitiveness to get into vet school, as you know. And then I think to maintain that throughout residency, to remember that residency is certainly more of a marathon than it is a sprint. And I think growing up playing sports and having that team-based mentality teaches you things like grit and resilience, like you said, but also that thing, you know, there is no instant gratification when you're playing sports. It's years and years of hard work, season after season after season. And I think that that really has helped set me up for some of the accomplishments that I have been able to achieve vet school, internship residency, and then, you know, getting a job that I really wanted and that I really love. So I, I would put a lot of credit on that sort of athletic mentality. 
when you were out on the soccer pitch and you were mad at somebody or trying to get around them, did you swear at them or cuss them out in Italian? Uh, well, not so much in Italian. I am from New Jersey. I feel like I have that, that it might also be part of the, like I could say like being an athlete, I'm being from New Jersey, giving you that grit. So, uh, maybe I can put a little bit of credit towards growing up on the Jersey shore too. It's awesome. <laughs> One more question for you, Christy, a little off script. I know I brought this up earlier, but what are your thoughts on after you give the cat, like you said, hydromorphone or even like dexmedetomidine and you like put them on the spinning chair and you spin them in the carrier? Would you recommend that to clinicians? Did you guys look at that in your study? What are your personal thoughts? Yeah, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I feel I can picture a lot of times we give a dog an injection of morphine, and then you kind of heave on their stomach a little bit. And that's actually something that we thought about, including like, if there was any physical manipulation to after giving the medication to see if animals would, if that wouldn't change our outcomes. Um, but I think that there's really no way to make that objective, you know, every, how much pressure are people putting on the abdomen or how many rotations are we, or, you know, it, it's hard to make that very streamlined and objective. So we decided not to include that. And it's not really the standard. It wasn't the standard at the university of Pennsylvania to like really try to manipulate the situation. Uh, I think sometimes it happens, but I think especially for cats, it's very challenging because they don't even want to be in the emergency room to begin with. So sometimes the only chance you have at touching them is giving that, giving them that injection and then, and then putting them back in the carrier or putting them in the, in the kennel. So uh, we, we didn't look at any of those things, but I would be curious. And, and another thing that I wanted to sort of put out there into the universe was, you know, we had 22 cats in our study over a two and a half year period. And we were at the University of Penn, which was a busy urban hospital. And so I think it'd be really interesting to make this a broader study, a multi-institution study looking at prospectively, of course, looking at enrolling cats for uh, the same reason if they ingested a foreign object and seeing the kind of trends that we see not just in Philadelphia, but, you know, across the country, what medications are people using? How successful are they? Are cats just on the, or is it only East Coast cats that eat rubber bands or is it cats, you know, nationwide? So I think that there is the potential for this to like grow into an even bigger study to get more info, information about cats. Yeah, I think that sounds like a really great way for uh, to collaborate. So if anyone yeah, needs if contact anyone out there, yeah. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I can tell you there's one Midwest cat that I have that was really, really fond of hair ties. So you got one for your study right there. <laughs> but thank you again, Chrissy. We really appreciate your time today and for your contribution to, to our journals. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was, was really fun. Awesome. And to our listeners, you can read Chrissy's manuscript on our journal's website and in print JAFMA. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to.